Well, as we continue this morning in our, our worship, uh, hopefully you did not shut your Bible. If you did, please open it back to Psalm 6. Um, as we look at this psalm, I thought it was befitting that uh, we just kind of finish this up. I know we're, we're back and, and meeting together, to which we say, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for our leaders. Uh, we can do this. I'll be honest with you, the first Sunday when we closed this and uh, I stood at this pulpit and preached the message with no one here except our tech uh, people, and uh, I was quite depressing, I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't think I even looked up. I just looked at my notes and thought, man, this is really hard to do. So I'm very excited that we are, we are back, and I know we've kind of had a few of you floating in uh, the last few Sundays, but it's nice to be here. Well, we began looking at this psalm last week, and David, if you remember, David is dealing with some distress. How many can testify to having distress in your life? Three of us. Okay. Clearly, this is not for you. I don't know. Maybe you're not human at all, right? That is a little bit rhetorical. Yes, we know what distress is, right? We understand that, and it comes in different forms. And just as the psalms previous to this, it has been explicit that David was dealing with the distress of Absalom and taking over the kingdom, and David working through that. Uh, this psalm here, uh, some scholars believe that's the case. It's still happening. Um, some believe David is dealing with a different type of sin. Something else is going on. But if you noticed, when we read it, there was not a confession, even though there is a confession, but nothing specifically. And sometimes we, we, we kind of come to this place, and, and a few other scholars think, you know, that God is just simply, at times, disciplines his children. And we are excited about that, aren't we? Well, for once, we're at one side of that, we know that God disciplines those whom he loves. But tell me, when we go through this, uh, it's not something we, we, we think we've signed up for, right? God is disciplining us. But we have an opportunity, and that's what we're learning out of this psalm, is there's an opportunity in how you respond uh, to, do, to distress. Uh, last um, Sunday, I read these verses, right? We, it shouldn't be a shocking to any believer that we come through tribulations and trials. Jesus said in John 16, uh, these things, he's speaking to his disciples, I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, right? But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, right? So are you cheerful today in the context of tribulations and trials? Well, we should be. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, 3, and 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Isn't it one of those things where we say, yes, these are great things, and when we're going through it, we kind of just say, how do we fast track to the point of where I've, I've, I've persevered and the character is developed, right? And we don't like going through these things. Uh, and that's true to life. I think that's just being human. But it, it's interesting. Last week I shared this, this illustration of the carrot and the egg and the coffee. And if you know anything about me, I always weave, try to weave coffee into everything. But uh, all three of them faced boiling water, right? If you remember the illustration, the carrot went in hard and 20 minutes of boiling water of this distressing moment, right? It turned to, to mush. The egg goes in delicate, right? And after 20 minutes of boiling, it becomes hard, but coffee, dramatic pause, but coffee, <laughs> coffee is altogether different. And, and, and put it into boiling water, it produces something, a wonderful fragrance. And, you know, what we do with distress and how we respond to it, how we reflect God and, and our confidence in him, it really, it really shows, right, what we, what we really believe. 
And David demonstrates, and he has been demonstrating for us uh, in this psalm, just exactly this, this wonderful fragrance, right? And some of you are thinking about coffee, and part of me thinks that's okay, but uh, this wonderful fragrance of faith. See, in the first uh, five verses, I broke this, this psalm into five verses, and even though the, uh, uh, the verses six and seven could probably go with the first half, I, I decided to kind of separate it, but uh, we see David pleading, right? I think I put this in your notes. He pleads for God's favor in verse 1. You know, God is coming with the hand of discipline, and, and David is responding and saying, please don't discipline me like those, as we see out of Psalm 5, verse 5, those workers of iniquity in which you hate. Don't discipline me like that. He's not saying no to the discipline. He's simply saying don't discipline me uh, like those who deserve the full brunt of your justice. And verses 2 through 3, we see David's plea for mercy. Lord, be merciful. Have mercy. And I, I'll mention this, I'm sure, again, but, uh, you, you know, in the Psalms previous, we see a different name for God, right? There's an Elohim, the all-powerful God, when he calls upon uh, the God of justice, right? He, David uses that name. And when he calls upon the God to remember his promises, the covenant God, he uses Yahweh. And, and now in this Psalm specifically, he uses Yahweh eight times in ten verses, right? There's something about David's understanding of the character and heart of God that he weaves through the whole psalm, and he is banking on his whole life right upon mercy. God will remember his promise. He'll remember his covenant. That's something we should grab hold of as we pray, right? God, remember what you've accomplished in Christ. Remember, right, for a New Testament church, uh, the covenant in his blood. Remember uh, the work your Savior, our Savior, your Son has done. Uh, Lord, I trust that you will never waver, right? God will never waver in his love for Christ. He will never waver in his love for whom Christ has redeemed. Lord, remember this. Have mercy. I don't know about you, but I'm going to weave that into prayer life, right? Lord, have mercy. Uh, but that, wonder, that understanding. And then David goes on, verses 4 and 5, where he pleads for God's rescue. He pleads for God's rescue, right? Who will remember? Right? If I go to the grave, who will remember this testimony? Who will remember this legacy? Who will remember what you have done? I think that's the way we can almost leverage a prayer with the Lord, right? God, make me a living testimony. If my life is in this way, let it be for your glory, right? Let's pray this way. And David is praying for God's rescue. And so as we look at the rest of this psalm this morning, uh, we see really the, the transition, right? Verses 6 and 7 do kind of, kind of float into the pleading, but I see a transition. It's almost as if David is he's pleaded with the Lord, but he comes to a, really in verses 6 and 7 with the why, the why of the pleading. Right? He's, he's poured out. He's told the Lord, here's what's going on. He's, he's worked with the Lord and saying, look, I, I want it to be a testimony, but if I get crushed and go to the grave, no one's going to remember you. And he has those words, how long? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where those are the words that come out. Lord, how long? David is replete with those. If you read his Psalms, how long? And so here he is, and we see in verses 6 and 7 where he says, I am weary with my groaning all night. I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief and grows old because of all my enemies. And here I simply say, and I put in your notes, I believe David is simply being honest with the Lord, and I, just, I said it as acknowledge the pain. Right here's this this turning point where David has has it's part of the prayer, but it seems as if he's he 
takes his eyes off of the Lord per se, and he starts looking at his plight. Here's where I'm at. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And guess what? I can float out of my room on my bed because of my tears. Right? He paints a picture for us. And I think it's important to realize uh, the, 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 what David actually is doing. There's, there's this acknowledgement. It's not to take away from how uh, weighing down stress and distress and problems and anxieties and fears. But David is not allowing those situations, that stress, even though it's, it's quite a picture for us, he's not allowing it to dictate to him his emotional response. And we see that in the following verses. David is simply not allowing this to empower him. The situation doesn't change as we unfold this psalm. We see this throughout David's life, right? He has the response. He has confidence in who God is. But I think the simple saying of, you know, what you tolerate, you empower. And David has come to a place where all his anxiety and fear, all his cares, as Peter says, he's casting them down. He's just simply, I say it, is acknowledging, right, the trouble, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the, the brokenness. David is exhausted, right? He is depressed. He's in a pretty fragile emotional state. Uh, he's walking through all these things. In verse 2, he says, I'm weak. And yet, uh, here he says, I am weary, right? We get this picture of just how uh, downcast he is. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something in life where it's you know, not just during the day you experience this, but at night. Have you ever lost sleep over something? Have you ever lost sleep over distress? Have you ever lost sleep over anxiety? Have you ever, you know, second and, and third and fourth and fifth and sixth guessed stuff, right? I got to guess about this again. Was I right? Was I wrong? Have you ever walked away from a situation going, that didn't work out anything like I planned? So I'm going to lay on my bed and just, you know, beat myself up over it. I'm going to go with that's rhetorical. I, you know, you're human, you're breathing. I think you've all experienced that. And this seems to be the picture that David is, is painting for us. He's expressing grief and sorrow. He has the feeling of anxiety and sadness. Again, you know, we're not fully aware. There's different views on what's happening in the background. And, and I kind of lean towards the Lord is just working on David. He's refining his servant. You know, I've often said, and I'm sure I'll say it many times, I'm getting to that age where I, I say things and then, then I ask, did I tell you that before? And if you've ever gotten that, I'm, that's happening now, Right. Uh, so I'm at that point, but I'll say this often. You know, sometimes a believer, you'll go through a difficult situation. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Now, if there's sin, it needs to be confessed, right? But sometimes we go through hardship just because God wants to refine you. God wants a, a more profound testimony. God wants to glorify himself in you. And I know that sometimes that sounds like, well, you know what? He can glorify my friend over here a little bit more through these things. Uh, right? But we trust God's sovereignty. God is at work. David is experiencing all of this. He has this feeling of, of when will this end, day and night, right? His couch is drenched in tears, right? As he collects himself from his bed and he makes it into the other part of the room and he sits down on the couch, right? For our, for our those, you know, out of the bedroom into the living room kind of picture he has for us. It doesn't leave him alone, right? It's right there. When I turn, it's right there. When I turn and I do this and I, and I give my attention to something else, this, is, this grief is weighing on me. 
See, I think I, I speak like this so you can say, you know what, I identify with David. You may not be experiencing to the point of this, or maybe there's been a season in your life, or maybe even today you're walking through something, and you go, you know, does God's children experience depression? Do we experience anxiety? Do we experience brokenness? Uh, Clearly the answer is yes. We do experience these things. You know, Martin Luther, uh, he had a word, right, for these things. He just summarized all of, all of the anxieties and fears of life, all the stresses, whether it's physical or spiritual, he lumped it together in one word, and this is a German word, right? And it's, and it's pronounced Anfangtugen. Now you've got to be careful how you pronounce that, right? And don't say that too quickly, right? And it had a word, he just summarized all of it. He placed it all together and said, this is life, and he dealt with and struggled with bouts of depression. Is the Lord actually with me? Right? And if you're familiar with church history, you know during the Reformation, the stand he took, right? the reason we're Protestants today, right? the idea of, of standing for the, the, the truth of God's word and saying, here's where I stand. Right? If you don't, can't prove me by the, the, the word of God, otherwise I will not recant. This is it. It's the stand right? every believer is called to make. You know, sway me by scripture. If not, this is where. This is where I'm going to stand. He has this great quote, it might encourage you, uh, going through distresses, and he sees the spiritual distresses, and, and he says this, when I go to bed, the devil is always waiting for me. When he begins to plague me, I give him this answer, devil, I must sleep. That's God's command. Work by day, sleep by night, so go away. If that doesn't work, and he brings out a catalog of sins, I say, yes, old fellow, I know about all of it. And, and I know some more you have overlooked. Here are a few extra sins. Put them down. He still won't quit and presses me hard and accuses me as a sinner. I scorn him and say, Saint Satan, pray for me. Of course, you have never done anything wrong in your life. You alone are holy. Go to God and get grace for yourself. If you want to get me all straightened out, I say, physician, heal thyself. I thought that was pretty good. Martin Luther's response, stresses, right? If you were laid in your bed going, Lord, will he forgive me? Has he forgiven me? The mercy that David is counting on, is that mine? Can we, can we, can we fill that in life? Now we think, well, here's a defining moment, right? The, the Reformation, that's a pretty big deal. And then we can make, you know, yeah, that's, and of course, Luther was quite eccentric, right? So he naturally, of course, he's going to struggle with those things. But what about, you know, you and I, normal people? Not saying Luther's not normal, but, right? Well, there's a wonderful story. You know, one of my favorite hymns is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I think of this hymn often because of some of the, of the lyrics, right? Uh, prone to wonder, prone to leave, you know, the heart that wants to go away, prone to leave the God I love. We, we feel that in life. And what makes the hymn a little bit more rich, if, if that's the right word, is the person who wrote it was a gentleman named Robert Robinson. He wrote this hymn after he was converted at a George Whitfield uh, preaching, right? After when he preached one of his sermons, he came to believe on Christ. Strengthen and encourage with the mercy, this wonderful mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he believes upon him. 
And then he has a doubt. He struggles in life and he, he, to the point of almost uh, falling away. I mean, struggled with depression and thinking this is not for me. And one day he's, it said he was in a stagecoach and a young woman quoted this hymn to him, his hymn. He used these words, just quoted it to him and, and he looked at the lady and said, uh, Madam, you know, I'm the poor fellow who actually wrote that hymn. I wish I could enjoy those moments again. I wish it could come. And her response, going right back to his hymn, saying, sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. And if you're familiar with the hymn, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. So this is why, right? Why it's important to understand who God is, the holiness, the majesty, right? The, the, the immensity of who God is. And then understand how, how weak we are, how sinful we are. Then we see how precious and beautiful and bright Christ truly is. The gospel and when we walk through life and we struggle with these things, we're going to have a tendency to question and wonder, is that mercy for me? And I pray today that you would have complete confidence and resolve. Yes, God will always love his son. He will always love whom his son has redeemed. I acknowledge the pain, Lord. Here's my heart. I'm not going to let this stress, this struggle, this anxiety, and it may take time and it may be a slow walk, but I'm not going to let it define me and who I am. I'm going to acknowledge it before you. I'm going to call, I'm going to cry it out to you. I'm going to cast it down. And there might be multiple times we cast it down, but we trust the sovereign God who's full of love. He's full of love. We sing about it earlier, and there's reasons, right, to sing his praises. So we see this, uh, these two verses. I see him as David beginning to look upon his life, assessing it in the light of the mercy he's just called upon uh, in God in verses 3 and 4, right? He's, he's working through these things, or 4 and 5, rather. And then he's, he's turning. And so in verse 8, I, I simply listed this point as separate from wicked. Here's what David does. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. So here we begin to see the, the change, right? The king, King David, is now banishing the wicked. He's saying, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Right? He's already said in, in Psalm 5, verse 5, he's already told us what God thinks about these uh, present tense acting uh, workers of iniquity, that God hates them. Right? He doesn't hate like you and I. God isn't a person who fills those irrational thoughts. It's against his holiness. Right? God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners. Jesus tells us in John right, 3.18, if you do not believe on Christ, you're condemned already. Right? This is uh, why the gospel must be preached. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is where you're going. This is why you need to know Jesus. This is the confidence David has. Right? He's trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in his, in his mercy. He's taking on the heart and, and character of God. Right? God wants to separate. God wants to separate from wickedness, separate from evil. And David is taking upon that upon himself. Right? He's acting like the king. I don't want to be a part of this or any of these workers of evil. Right? He's separating from the wicked. 
How do we know? Here's the great question, right? How do we know today? Because if there's those who just don't believe in Jesus Christ, uh, and yet we would say they're, they're part of, of the wicked, at least at one point, how do we know? Right? That, I think, is a really good question. David, being in the Old Testament, clearly, I think, is relying upon what they say. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 and 5, there's this great attesting of the Lord. And, uh, and it says this, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or a dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him. Hold fast to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord, your God, who brought you to the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away evil, right, from your midst. Isn't it amazing? Here you have a prophet or a dreamer comes and does some miraculous work, going, wow, that's pretty good. Right? On, my, on my best day, I don't come close to anything magical and beautiful as that, right? But it's not based on what they do here, is it? If they do this and it comes to pass, it's what they say. What the person says, what the person communicates. Right? He, this is how we know what wicked is. If they, do, they lead you away from Scripture, right? If the advice sounds good, but it's not in line with scripture, you should know that's not what the Lord has for you. That's not the instruction we should be receiving, right? Jesus grabs hold of that in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, right? Cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't it interesting, this wonderful parallel? David is saying, look, all these workers of iniquity that practice lawlessness, I want you out of here. I'm going to separate myself from them. It's not what they do per se. We can spot the sinners that are contrary to Scripture, but it's what they say. And Jesus says the same thing. It's who we believe. It's not banking on these things I've done. It's trusting in Christ and him alone. Right? And David is doing the work of the king. We see this wonderful parallel. Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew 7. Separate. Separate from me. You workers of lawlessness. You workers of iniquity. I mean, think about David here for a moment. Catalog what's been going on, right? We, back, we backtrack and go through what he's experiencing. He's experiencing weakness. He's troubled bones, troubled soul. He's fear of death. He's groaning. He's weeping. He's sleepless. He's dim-eyed, right? His enemies are oppressing. And yet he comes and he trusts the Lord. He acknowledges that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, he acknowledges that God is in control, that he's merciful. <clears throat> Don't worry, it's my mic. It's... it's It'll stay up here, that virus, right? <laughs> Acknowledges and he confesses the living God. He's merciful. He heals. He returns. Again, Yahweh eight times, 
right? You see this transition, separate. I trust in his mercy. I know that he's listened. I know he's going to move on my behalf. I am now, therefore, going to separate from wickedness, right? Go back to Psalm 5. He, he confesses sin in Psalm 5. After I confess my sin, he trusts God. Here's Psalm 6. After separating from wickedness, God is hearing, right? And because of this, he has confidence, right? Why is the pursuit of holiness important in your life, right? Why is the first commandment, right, have no other gods before him? Why? Because any other direction you go leads you to the gutter. You must, right, put your, your focus upon the Lord. You must run this race with him in front of you. Separate from evil. It's a part of our assurance, isn't it? Pursue after him, right? Cast your cares, pray, trust his mercy, call upon his name, trust that he remembers the covenant. This is what uh, David is banking on. This is the, the transition. Well, that should be good stuff. You should be going, hey, I'm going to weave that right in. I'm going to believe. I'm going to pray this way. We need to separate, but that's the real struggle, isn't it? Some of us like to walk the line with sin. We just kind of walk. I'm okay. It's a little close, but I'm okay. I think the cause to separate is it reminds me of the story of, of a stagecoach. That's interesting, another stagecoach. Right, and a stagecoach where uh, a gentleman came in for the job of driving the stagecoach, and uh, the, the boss asked him a question uh, during the interview and said, you know, if, if there was a ledge, I want to know how good of a driver you are, how close could you get that stagecoach to the, to the edge? The first applicant says, I'm, I'm pretty good. Actually, I'm real good. I can probably get that stagecoach within three feet, no problem. Okay, well done. Excuses him, brings the next applicant in. Begins to converse with this applicant, asks the same question. Here's an edge, or a ledge rather, and uh, you know, I want to see how good you are. How, how close can you get that stagecoach to the edge? To the edge of that ledge, right? And he says, oh, I, you know, even, I'm, even, I'm really good. I'm not just good, right? I'm really good. I can get it to one foot. No problem. Okay, very good. That's outstanding. Well, it lets him out. Third candidate comes in for the position, and he asks him the same question. How close would you get? The candidate says, I would steer that stage goat so far away from that ledge. I wouldn't even attempt to get close to it. And of course, right, he's the one who gets the job. See, in life, that's kind of what we do, right? Well, I can get close. Just, just close. How, I mean, think about it from this practicality in your own life, work associates, those of you, you know, family member, whatever it might be, who will just lead you, it's, just lead you away. I can get close. Ah, I'm all right. I can get close. See, for David, he's not saying, you know what? Some of these, I'm going to separate myself from some. This is a full heart, full-fledged devotion. All. And he's not talking about, uh, you know, at some point you have to evangelize. He's not saying separate and isolate. He's not saying that. But he's talking about his own life. He's talking about those who are giving counsel. And that's what he's talking about. The very counsel I'm receiving. Let them receive it. Let them deal with it. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to trust wholly and, and full-heartedly in the Lord. And see, that naturally goes into the last point here. Verses 9 and 10, where simply this, we see this over and over and over again. Trust in the Lord. Trust him. Trust him. Have faith in him. So the Lord has heard my 
supplication. I mean, think about it. He's, he's had this. He's cried out for mercy. He's contemplated his bed being full of tears. He's looked upon his life. He separates from the wicked, right? There's his defining right, line in the sand. Separates from the wicked. The Lord, he now, now he listens. Now he listens to me. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Here's where the rubber meets the road, right? The question we could put here is, do you trust them? Do you have this kind of faith, right? Do you, do you know that this is the God who goes and, and, and redeems and, and concerns himself? This is the God who is active and real. Is this where your faith is at? That when you get done praying, and I know there's times where uh, we can pray and call upon the Lord and feel like our prayers make it about three feet above our head and then kind of just like a helium balloon that's let loose in a room and just kind of fizzles out over in the corner somewhere. Sometimes it feels like that. But we have, to ha- we have to know the character and heart of God. We have to pray, right, according to how Scripture tells us to pray. We need to separate and be serious about our faith. All these things become a practical guides for us to grow us on our assurance, and to lead us to a confidence that God listens. See, I think David has this, this understanding, right? He realizes something about God and what pleases God. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that one, right? He is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's not a, a mistake that David later on in verse 32 of chapter 11 is also mentioned in the great cloud of witnesses, right? The heroes of the faith. So David has profound faith. He believes that God has mercy for him. He talks about past tense. God has heard. God will, present tense, receive my prayer. Now, we don't have any indication, right, that the situation has changed. In 10 verses, we have David who is right, pouring out his heart. He's questioning how long, right? He's, he's pleading favor. And he's pleading mercy. He's pleading rescue. And now there's a profound change in him. I mean, think for a moment. What is confidence in God coming at, with a, an attitude of submission and, and confession? What does that do for our prayer life? A broken and contrite spirit, as David would say in Psalm 51, you will not deny he will not deny. This is the confidence we need to have when we pray. David is trusting, right? God has accepted. God has heard. God will move. God will restore. David is looking forward, right, to God doing these things. He is trusting. I believe all these things, the situations and anxieties, what you, what you deal with in life, right, God is, is orchestrating them that, that you would be turning and pressing harder into Christ, pressing harder into his word. Right? Your, your trials and your struggles, right? they're meant for this, that you would have a stronger confidence. You know, we've walked through this, that we'd have a resolve like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't, have to, I don't have to take a moment and discuss this. I'm not bowing down. I know, as Paul said, I know in whom I believed. That's the confidence that comes. You spend time with the Lord and you look at this and say, this is the heart of David. This is how he understands how <clears throat> mighty and, and uh, just uh, incredible, right? God is. The majesty of God. Trials are meant to bring us to this place of confidence 
of wonderful resolve, that there would be a wonderful testimony, that we can trust in who he is. So the question is, are you, are you walking through something? I know we have this, this pandemic. Is it, is it weighing on you? Is it one of those things where you're like, you know what? It's not bothering me, but at night I lay in bed and it's bothering me. Is fear creeping in? Right? Is the counsel you're receiving, is it leading you to say, you know what? I, sh- I shouldn't go, uh, you know, do those things or I shouldn't do this or whatever it might be. I mean, just where is your faith? And it doesn't mean being blind or being at a point where we can say, uh, you know, I'm a fatalist and, you know, God has, he ordains my days and orchestrates my breath. And it doesn't mean we cast wisdom to, uh, to the wind. It means being wise, right? Being smart. But are you controlled? Are you led by fear? Are you led in, with a confidence of who God is? A confidence of the majesty of God. You see, today, you think about faith. The Muslim puts his faith in the Quran or Muhammad. The Buddhist puts his faith in graven images. The humanist puts his faith in themselves. The religious put their faith in their works. The materialist puts his faith in his wealth. But a Christian puts their faith in Christ alone and no other. Who paid a price, who receives us, who hears us, And David's plea, right? David's crying. David's turning and acknowledging where he's at, being honest, confessing. It leads to victory. His plea leads to victory. Going back to Hebrews, and I'm going to read now from 12 uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, right? Separate. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand, the the throne of God. See, in this life, as the Hebrew writer says, run with endurance, patience, right? The right direction, focusing upon the Lord, but realize and know that the race that is set before you, the race that is set before me, has trials and tribulations in it. It has difficulty. It's what Jesus said. In this world, you're going to have difficulty. This is part of the race. It's part of the direction. It's part of God refining And what is the Hebrew writer? What's his advice? What is David saying? Fix your eyes. I know he has listened. I know who he is. I trust in his mercy and his power and his might. The Hebrew writer says it this way, right? Fix your eyes upon Christ, the author, finisher of your faith. He's given you the faith to believe, and now he's growing it in you. He's refining you. Some of us this morning might look at that and say, that's that's wonderful, but I'm still struggling. I love this story in Mark 9 where a man brings to Jesus his son who's a demon-possessed. And in the passage, it, it, Jesus seems a little frustrated with the lack of faith that's going on there. And the man responds to Jesus and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think sometimes our prayer just simply needs to be that. Lord, I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. 
So we see this in David, right? Confidence. And if our confidence is shaky, Lord, help my, help my unbelief. Help me to believe more. Help me to trust you. Help me in the context of life to have eyes of faith. Even though it doesn't look right, it doesn't seem right, I know, I know, right? You will keep your promise. You will maintain the covenant. You will redeem all those whom your Savior, your, our Savior, your Son has died. With that confidence, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can call upon your name. And we can acknowledge, Lord, that in all our struggles, our fears, anxieties, Lord, the things we, we deal with in life, let alone maybe the sins we struggle with, Maybe the things, Lord, that, that just have weighed us down. Often we may have felt that we've cast them at your feet, and yet maybe we've picked them up again. Lord, we, we just simply come, Lord, at this time. Lord, we come with, with this confidence. We acknowledge, Lord, our pain, our, our struggle. We acknowledge that it's weighing upon us. It's stealing our joy. It's stealing our sleep. It's taking from us rest and peace. We come, Lord, with, with David. We come with a seriousness. Just as David in Psalm 9 had a, a renewed commitment, Lord, we see a, a renewed sense of separating from the wicked, from wickedness. As you call us out, as we see the importance of our holiness. And Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know when our faith is strong and when it's, when it's weak. And so we ask this morning that you would strengthen us, that you would, Lord, make us just wonderfully aware of your activity, of your providence, of your sovereignty. Let us look upon the situations of life, the stresses. Let us not, Lord, turn to mush like the carrot or turn hard like the boiled egg, but to give off the fragrance and the aroma of Christ, faith in Jesus. Lord, we know that situations, struggles will come. Jesus tells us to build our house upon the rock, not on the sand. It's not if the rains come, it's when. We know there will be trials, temptations. We know you test us, you challenge us. We know you grow us. So Lord, let us meet these moments in life with wonderful faith in you. That in us, you would receive the glory. And then as our eyes are fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord, let us run with endurance. Let us run through these trials and struggles, realizing and know you are the sovereign God. This is what you've placed in front of us for such a time as this. Let us, God, give off the fragrance of faith and glorify you through all of it. And we thank you. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.